0: Good evening, and uh, welcome to Gut Reaction and the Cambridge Science Festival. Firstly, before any further introductions, uh, there shouldn't be any fire alarms. There's no fire drills planned, so if you do hear an alarm, then please follow the the green and yellow sign saying fire exit. My name is Dr. Ewan St. John-Smith. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Pharmacology at the University and a fellow of Corpus Christi College. And My research group works on pain specifically pain focused on understanding what goes wrong in diseases of the joints, such as osteoarthritis, as well as conditions that affect the gut, such as inflammatory bowel disease. Last year, myself and Dr. James Hockley, a postdoctoral research fellow in the lab, were awarded a grant by the Biotechnology and Biological Sciences Research Council to try and understand more about the nervous sensation of different things that go wrong in the gut, trying to understand what drives those sensations of fullness, urgency, and pain. As part of the grants, we were given some money through a Pathways to Impact Fund, which enabled us to make a film. And this film was uh, we, to do this. We teamed up with Colin Ramsey and Jeremy Dawson of Dragon Light Films, a Cambridge-based film company. Um, and it was a great pleasure to team up with Colin again because two years ago we made a film called Pain in the Machine about robots and pain, which won the Arts and Humanities Research Council Research Film of the Year Award. To make Gut Reaction, we're indebted to Bowel and Cancer Research, a charity that supports people living with conditions that affect the gut, as well as investing in UK science, focused on furthering understanding of bowel conditions. Importantly, though, this film couldn't be made without four very special people. But I'm not going to tell you anything more about those, because the film itself will tell you more about them. One last thing is you should have hopefully received on your way in a questionnaire, the first six questions of which you've hopefully already filled out, because it asked you to fill them in before the film. But even if you haven't, if you could fill out the rest of the questionnaire before you leave this evening and there's boxes for you to deposit your questionnaires in when you leave, that would be most appreciated by us. Lastly, once the film is over, we'll run about 20 minutes, we're going to have a a panel question and answer session which will be compared by Dr. Durbin of Cambridge Neuroscience. Um, The idea is that she'll ask questions of the panel members but also be fully open to you to ask any questions that you have about the film, about the science of understanding the gut and also about clinical conditions themselves. So that's will finish. I ask you to sit back and enjoy the film.
1: So, good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us this evening. So, my name is Dr. Derv LeGlen, and I am the strategic manager for Cambridge Neuroscience here at the university. So, I get lots of different brain scientists to talk to each other and to try and help with different problems. And of course, you may not think the gut has anything to do with the brain, but hopefully, after this evening, you can see why now I probably work with Ewan and Jim as well. So I'll just introduce, so Ewan already introduced himself. Dr Ewan St. Smith is a senior lecturer in the Department of Pharmacology just up the road here and runs a laboratory looking at pain and how it specifically relates um, to the gut and other areas. We have Dr James Hockley, uh, one of Ewan's postdoctoral research associates and so he has been doing a lot of the work as detailed in the film this evening. And then I'm really happy to welcome Robert Heuskel. Sorry, (laughs) I do hope I got that right. So Robert is a consultant paediatric uh, gastroenterologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital, so dealing with um, bowel problems but specifically in children And then finally, we're very um, happy to welcome Dr Deborah Gilbert, who is the Chief Executive of the and Cancer Research Charity that supported this film and support a lot of the work going on in these disorders. So without further ado, I'm going to just maybe throw out a few questions to the panel, um, just give them one each, just to warm them up, and then it will be over to you and you can shut me up then. Okay? So I guess... Really, just to start off, I don't know... If anybody, I'm I'm sure lots of people have, but I hadn't really been too familiar with the Bowel and Cancer Research Charity. I wonder perhaps if you could tell the audience maybe just a little bit about the aims of the charity and how do they help people with different bowel conditions?
2: Um, So the first thing to say is that I'm not a doctor, so uh, I just want to manage your expectations. Um, I'm actually a lay person, but I am the chief executive of a wonderful little charity called Bowel and Cancer Research. Um, and what we do is that we fund research into all sorts of different conditions that happen with the uh, lower, lower bowel. Um, and I think you heard from um, the, 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 the film that was just shown just how much um, both uh, problem, problems people get um, with bowel disease, how hidden those diseases are and how excluded and isolated they can make people feel. And we very much believe that actually that's a bit of a vicious circle. And because bowel disease remains quite taboo, we as charities, we're very small and we lack the funding um, in order to do the big research pieces that that make a difference. Having said that, we have funded some amazing research and we will continue to do so. Um, But when you think about the statistics, it's quite staggering. Um, around 41,000 people will be diagnosed with bowel cancer every year in the UK. It's the second largest cancer that affects both men and women equally and it's the second biggest cancer killer still. But I expect a lot of you actually think of the big cancers as possibly lung cancer, breast breast and prostate cancer but bowel cancer is really up there and yet people don't really talk about it. Um, and the other really key diseases in the area are things like inflammatory bowel disease, again, which we talked about, you know, can strike children at a very early age, increasing in prevalence, um, and make people's lives a real misery, not just because of the pain um, that people suffer, but because the diseases are so unpredictable. So very often people don't know what's going to make them flare up. Um, And and that makes life unpredictable. And we heard about not being being able to go out and and eat and socialize because you're afraid that something that, that you eat maybe will upset you. Um, so so there's a huge prevalence of those conditions out there, um, IBS which in several forms affects even more people probably than things like inflammatory bowel disease and yet we can't even really diagnose it properly still because actually when you're examined clinically you look completely normal. So. Um, I think the film was absolutely brilliant and very many congratulations to you and a big thank you to a lot of the people who took part in that, which, you know, again is very courageous and we know several of the people who who took part in the film, um, which I think just gave a flavour really of of both the extent and and the impact that these conditions have. I think that was really striking. It's actually
1: the impact both mentally and socially and everything as well. as It's not just the disorder on paper it's actually what it, the impact it has exactly. on the person
2: yeah
1: and um, thanks deborah that's that's really i'm sure the audience will have loads of questions for you jim i'm going to put you in the hot seat next Fantastic. i know from previous experience that research takes an incredibly long time you said that you had these seven different um populations of genes that you were mm-hmm. interested in and of course we heard from one of the contributors in the film that you know, really what we want is a gut-specific pain medication, mm-hmm. so not these opioids and NSAIDs that have been developed years and years ago that are really not, they're actually causing more problems for people with these type of disorders. So, so when are we going to have this pain-specific <laughs> medication? Day,
2: Just for the gut. So,
1: you know, no pressure, but <laughs> could we have a date? <laughs>
3: Shall I sign for it as well? <laughs> Um, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is this is the challenge. We um, uh, we have good painkillers for certain diseases, but a lot of them are um, we can't use in in gut diseases, um, yeah. or they cause adverse effects. So yeah, really trying to identify some kind of gut-specific analgesic would have huge transform transforma- um huge make a huge change to a lot of patients. Yeah, of course. Um, and what's What's been quite uh, quite exciting in the last couple of years has been a couple of really big um, changes in the way we research this field. So um, I think patient stratification has become a really big thing um, within uh, the research that's going on. So just so to so
1: explain that, yeah, that's uh, so more the kind of personalised medicine, is yeah,
3: it? Yeah, so personalised medicine. So um, something like IBS, um, irritable bowel syndrome, that's affecting such huge numbers of people there are a number of causes behind that and if you um, if you take everyone uh, collectively as, as one then um, the treatment options that are, or the, the drugs being trialed may not necessarily work for everyone um, and we can lose that um, that clinical effect and, and a trial may may fail
1: but um, so if you What's group been, them, if you group them exactly. by maybe the potential calls or yeah, um, uh, their triggers possibly, is yeah, that, being is that something? Being
3: able to group patients into different ways, that's helped um, clinical trial design and also um, the research areas that we've been going into. Um, and then the second big uh, technological change recently has been the availability of um, sequencing techniques. So the ability to... Um, sequence and understand. So the, the Human Genome Project, for example, sequencing people's DNA, but also at a, at a, a cell, cellular level, taking an individual cell and sequencing and understanding every gene that's present within that cell. And this, um, I think, will be really important in driving forward those Okay. New, new drugs coming so, through. So, so, very
1: much a personalised medicine kind of route yeah, there. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I guess that's really important because you know we heard of from lots of different people in this film, and actually the common denominator was pain, of course. Mm-hmm. But the, of course they're presenting with you know vastly different um, characteristics, I guess.
3: Yeah. So that's that's really the, the the kind of the linchpin of our research is to look at um, uh, sensation and, and pain specifically. Yeah. So trying to um, identify and understand well, what are the, the uh, neuro um, neurological uh, sorry uh, anatomical pathways that are causing that pain and um, if we can understand the specific pathway are there specific things that we can then target that might be useful in, in blocking that pathway okay,
1: specifically? okay. Inter- that's very interesting and um, so Rob, you know we heard from lots of different doctors during the film um, talking about different types of gut disease, so you deal with children. And of course we saw adults and children. And I think the striking thing for me is, and I guess this is what happened, you know, it's, it's, you, you deal with a disease very differently as a child than as an adult. And for you, what are the kind of challenges or opportunities rather maybe for, for working with children in this, in this type of area?
4: Well, I, I think um, the challenges for children are just that much more um, uh, challenging. They are Most of the children with inflammatory bowel disease present at a, a sort of critical time of their life. They're developing, they're making relationships, um, they're growing, um, they're sort of identifying themselves as individuals, and, and suddenly you get confronted with Something that people then identify you with yeah. or, or as label, and, I
1: guess. And, and, and of course, and, the stigma and the and the stigma that
4: we're... with school and friends and relationships um, is is massive. Not not to say that that isn't an issue um, for them. adults, but it comes at a very um, formative time of your life. So um, we work very hard to support them with their families through that, to deal with schools, to deal with friends. Um, a good chunk of that is with psychology and, and psychological support. And I guess the, the film brought, I thought, fantastically well how <coughs> challenging the symptoms are in your day to day function. Yeah, of course. And whilst the symptoms are pain, it's the, the consequences of having these yeah. conditions that are in many ways much worse than it's the pain. It's not necessarily that,
1: the pain, it's what the pain right. results in, yes.
4: Um, and I think the, the, the film tried to explain very well that that's the sort of end product of a lot of these processes that are different. So the, the motility problems in irritable bowel ha- have a very different route to cause pain than the inflammation that you have for ulcers in your bowel that, that also causes pain. So we spend a lot of time trying to understand the causes of pain so that we can get down to dealing with the cause of that pain it would be fantastic if we had drugs that while we were fixing the cause of the pain would allow us to deal with the pain and, and therefore allow better function so just like yeah. taking uh, a painkiller for a headache not knowing yeah, necessarily what what's caused the headache it allows you to to improve the function and for children you know i guess as much as adults a lot of it is about normalizing about
1: wanting to function
4: and and live a normal life.
1: Yeah, of course. Well, that's what everyone wants. So, Jim, again, no pressure with that drug. (laughs) Um, So, I guess, just not to let you off so lightly, obviously this film and your research specifically deal with pain, but, of course, there are other aspects to these disorders. Do you, as a lab, do you collaborate with other researchers working on, say, for instance, the causes of these type of gut disorders? Or how does that work, or do you kind of work on your own as, a, as an entity?
0: So I'm very much a basic scientist, and all I really care about is to understand how a nerve gets switched on, and the system within which you work is pain, because of all these different symptoms people experience, if you experience pain, it has a massive impact on numerous different aspects of your life, your mental health, as well as your ability to get through a normal day. So if we can understand what causes pain and treat that, then that has a massive impact on the overall condition. But, of course, it would be naive to think that we can do everything through what we mainly do in the lab, which is just working with mice, because mice can do some things, but they can't speak to you and tell you how they're feeling today. So we need to use other systems alongside that, which is why we have a lot of collaborations with the gastroenterology clinics here. We work with the rheumatologists when we're talking about our arthritic joint disease projects. So I think you know we have our, our niche, which is the basic science of understanding what goes wrong at the pain point of view, but we're not going to solve everything just by working on, on the model organism, the mouse. So that's why I think it's important to have that link but I think in terms of tackling the causes of a condition, I think that's really important. But as, as Rob said, you can, if you stop the pain, that will have a massive impact on the person's life while you try and figure out what's actually causing the condition in that person. So I think you need, you need to have both approaches. And one can't do everything, so we'll focus on the pain.
1: Okay, well, we'll let you offer that just for now. <laughs> um, okay, so now that you're all nicely warmed up, I'm going to open up for questions from the audience and we're straight in there right directly in the middle. So we're going to wait for a microphone, are we going to wait for a microphone? So if we just, I'm presuming these will magically switch on, okay, there you go, thank you very much. So the gentleman there up right in the middle, the back row of the front section.
5: I, yeah, I, I relate very much to what um, Ian St. John Smith was just saying because I have minor arthritic pain and I have minor bound pain. And so these are completely different. And um, I, I can't explain to you the difference. If I say it's dark brown, what does that mean? I mean, you know, I can't tell you um, what it feels. And so I understand what you're saying about um, mice and stuff. Um, these pangs or pains or whatever are all very different um the the, the, the ibs issue um was different to um a current issue because um, you get sharp pains you get achy pains you get bowels turned to water pains and you know that if you don't find somewhere really soon it's going to be too late um arthritis is totally different arthritic knees um and and There is no way you can describe it. And so I relate to the idea, which I think you floated, that basically um, there are many different sensors, you know, like um, how does, what is it called, proprioception? I mean, it's a completely different thing. Does it just measure? There are so many. Um, So I kind of almost want to ask you the question, um, have you come to some conclusion about the different types of pain sensor that there are?
0: Yes and no. I mean, there's a pain research, the thing, is a huge field worldwide, especially in the US, where they're currently experiencing the, the opioid crisis and problems of how to treat people. So I think there are many different forms of pain, as, as you well articulated and as people in the film did. And I think you know what my lab tries to do is we work on two of these conditions. We have different animal models that work on different aspects of that pain. In terms of why things feel different, um, through work that, that Jim's done in the lab, for example, we've identified that in the gut alone there are seven different types of sensory nerve, and that's based on the different genes they express. So, If a nerve expresses different genes, it will be activated by different stimuli. It will also then be wired up to your brain differently. So if you activate this population, you're going to get a different sensation than you, if you activate that population. And at the moment, that's as far as we've got. What we need to do next is try and integrate that in to understand, okay, well, if we target this one population, what sort of pain are we going to switch off, or are we going to affect the mechanosensory aspects of the gut? So I think what we've... how pain has developed over the last 10 years research-wise... is understanding that you haven't just got one set of pain-sensing nerves in your body... but rather there are different types of pain-sensing nerves... and they're different because they express different genes. And so therefore you can target them in the periphery... by trying to switch nerves off at their source but also the fact they express these different genes will give rise to the fact that when you activate these different sorts of neurons, you're going to get different interpretations of that when, it get, when that signal finally gets to your brain. So it's a bit of a, a, a waffly, grey answer, but we do know there are different types of pain-sensing nerves, and that's a huge advance compared to, say, 20 years ago, where it's thought sort of, thought, well, you know, pain is pain, and it's just people feel it differently. We now know there's definitely a different sensory aspect to why people feel things differently.
1: Okay, so I'm going to take this person here, about halfway down the centre. This lady, yep. So
6: our, our question was: um, What do you think about over-the-counter medication? So, with the rise in a modem, um, Omprozol, you can now buy lots more over-the-counter um, medication. You know, how effective is it? Is it good to take?
1: Okay, did everyone hear that question? Sorry. Okay, so basically the question was, the lady was asking that over-the-counter medication has become very popular, um, things like amodium and Ameprazol, and what did the panel think about the use of this medication? Is that what, yep? Yeah? Okay, so I think I'm gonna ask Rob that one.
4: So, um, first of all then, they're, they're not pain control medications. Both those are, are medications that are, that are trying to address the cause um, that then leads to downstream pain. So omeprazole is trying to improve the inflammation in your stomach lining by blocking and switching off acid. Therefore, your uh, pain sensory fibers don't fire off and tell you, tell you you've got pain. So I think over-the-counter medications are helpful because they allow you to have a sense of control and you're not queuing and waiting and, and um, uh, you know, having to put up with your symptoms but it's important to know what you're using them for so and and to have some understanding around what you're trying to do pain after all is something that has taken millions of years to evolve for us to understand there's a problem if you've got pain in your gut from an ulcer then it's telling you something and if you just take pain co- painkillers and ignore that pain then you know there are consequences to that so it needs you need to be somewhat informed about how you're managing, if you're just dealing with pain, what are the consequences of ignoring that signal? And whilst that might make good sense if you have a, a condition like irritable bowel where pain is a big part of that and we don't understand the consequences of just blocking pain, it's not the same if you have a stomach ulcer or inflammatory bowel disease. Blocking pain on its own has consequences.
1: Okay. Okay.
2: I would, could I just add yep. to that, that probably um, over-the-counter medications are useful in some respects, um, possibly for short-term relief, would you agree, of, of some sort of symptoms? Not necessarily of pain, but emoji, for example, if, you, if you've been very poorly and you've had a real really bad dose of diarrhoea or something like that. But I don't think anybody would um, advise that they become a a, a constant part of your life. I think that can then become quite problematic. And actually, if you are feeling that you should be going to the chemist very often and getting any sort of over-the-counter medication, you should be actually talking to your GP about that and getting a referral for further, further investigations.
1: Yeah. I guess that's the bit that's slightly difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of the symptoms, especially with maybe aspects of irritable bowel syndrome, it is a case of, well, when do you know it's bad enough to go to your GP and, uh, and beg them to refer you or things like that? I guess that's where people would probably have a, a difficulty, I would say.
2: Yes, uh, although know. I would say that probably people do would possibly sense. know that, that, yeah, that it's, when it's getting that actually should and also there's a wonderful thing now called pharmacy first where you can actually talk wonderful thing but I mean it's a very useful thing in terms of getting access to the NHS yes where you can actually talk to your pharmacist before you go yeah to before you
1: go to the GP yeah no that's a very good idea yeah okay so just two rolls back from the lady that just asked the question thank you
7: thank you uh, do we know if there are any benefits of taking probiotics
1: Okay, so I guess, th- so You and I'm going to put this one to you because well we well actually, done. no, 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 just because we actually had, a, and I don't know if any of you were at it, we had the Cambridge Neuroscience Public Lecture um, last Thursday and Ewan and I organised that. So I'm going to pass that one over to Ewan and talk to you about the microbiome. Where are you listening?
0: So, so just for those who don't know what probiotics are, these are essentially drinks you can buy which have certain bacteria in them, and the idea is you drink these drinks and it will enrich your microbiome, the, the bacteria in the gut, and make whatever's wrong with you better. So I think, firstly, the microbiome, biome, the, the bacteria in your gut, they're definitely there for a good reason. They've co-evolved with us. You've got about one and a half kilos of bacteria in your colon doing good things. We don't need to know what they're doing, but it's good they're there. And you can see some of the problems when you take antibiotics and you wipe everything out. Some of the side effects are because you've no longer got those good bacteria. And it's known that lots of things can affect the gut microbiome. So your diets can affect it, whether you live with pets, all these sorts of things. In terms of probiotics, I think the first thing is that if you go to a shop and you see you've got the probiotics on the shelf, they'll have use-by dates. And they're probably going to use-by dates because at some point, everything that was originally alive that was put into there has died off. And so if you buy something this week or next week and it's still within its use-by date, the newest one will be different to the one that's just before it's use by date. So even though you're buying the same thing, it's not going to have the same stuff in it at different points in production, regardless of whether you talk about the fact it's going to do anything. Secondly, you're going to drink this and it's going to go into your stomach, which has, again, evolved to be very acidic to kill things off, to help with digestion. So a lot of those bacteria in that drink that you've just paid quite a lot of money for are going to be destroyed before they get to where they need to go. So I'm not saying there's nothing good about probiotics at all. I just think there have not been sufficiently well-controlled trials with the right sorts of things and the right sorts of people to work out can these be of benefit? And obviously, if we're talking about taking these in generally healthy people. There could easily be people who have a specific deficit in a certain thing, and therefore taking a probiotic could be a, a big benefit to them. But in terms of just as part of your everyday sort of living, I think, no, just exercise, have a varied diet. Those things will be much more useful for you than taking random probiotics that haven't been trialed at all. They're just... On sale, making someone somewhere quite a bit of money. That's quite a cynical answer, but that's that's just my so opinion. Ju- just I to, I was just going on to panel, slightly uh,
1: balanced the cynicism,
0: <laughs> right?
1: So th- you know. Um, so I guess one thing I took from the from the lecture the other the other evening mm-hmm. was the idea that okay, taking probiotics in a capsule form that you buy in the chemist or the shop was not necessarily a good idea number one they haven't been tried or tested or anything like that and there really hasn't been anything kind of shown to, but, but there was um i guess an argument for improving your microbiome naturally mm-hmm. so as ewan said through a varied diet That's get a fun. pet um <laughs> <Get> yeah <laughs> you know uh, and and really kind of you know having this very kind of varied
0: well, that's to say, I have two cats, and I get far more fun from those than I would swallowing some bacteria every day from a can that I've paid a lot of money for. Um, yeah. But no, I think, I think that you know, we're learning more about the microbiome. You don't have to go back that far before most scientists didn't even really pay any attention to it. just a bacteria in the gut, and that was that. So I think you know, that we have a lot to learn from it. It's clearly doing important things. Yeah. Um, and there could be a way of manipulating it, but I'm not sure your over-the-counter drinks are going to be the way to go.
1: So Deborah just wants to say something, yeah.
2: Um, go, just going back to the diet um, point, uh, it's diet and exercise are probably the most important things that we can all do to make ourse- to keep ourselves healthy. And actually, diets can be very rich in things like called prebiotics. And prebiotics are actually things that feed your existing microbiome rather than trying to... Replace trillions of bacteria with not very many um, new bacteria, a a good healthy diet with lots of fruit, green vegetables, not too much meat, not too much alcohol, Um, that will really set most people right.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I saw a lot of hands up here, so we will get to you. I'm just going to go, where's the microphones? Okay, we'll just go with this lady first, and then we'll go up
6: here, and then we'll go over here. Yeah, prebiotics are very important, like having a lot of salad, onion, garlic, <laughs> all that type of thin fruits and fiber that the bacteria feed on it and can digest, and then they give a short-change amino acids, so they feed us the bacteria and they provide. Sometimes they, they are good for neurotransmitters as well, uh, the bacteria, they provide a lot of things, But about probiotics, you can make your own probiotics, you can make kimchi, sauerkraut, Kefir, uh, kombucha, uh, tempeh, miso, and and you could all make a home. I mean we make kefir every day, it's very easy to do. Um, we used to make kombucha, so and you don't have to pay a lot of money for that. It's quite cheap to make and that probably would work much better and it has been tried and tested by many cultures.
1: Yeah, I think I actually I do think there's been a kind of a revolution in those types of foods and I guess with regard to, in terms of scientific evidence, I'm not sure, but I don't, I think there's there's a really good set of evidence for having a wide and varied diet, and yes, some of the foods you mentioned, again, you can make them at home, and, and yeah, I think the, the variety is key. Rob, and you, and then.
4: Um, I, I think what what the story with probiotics tells us, and actually also the, the enteral nutrition story in Crohn's disease, is that the gut flora is important, <clears throat> and you can vary that in many different ways. You can completely change it with the enteral nutrition that you saw Ollie take at, at the beginning of that um, film, and we know it completely heals the, the bowel ulceration in Crohn's disease, but you can only take one type of nutrition. That almost certainly completely changes your gut flora and it allows the inflammation to go away. There are some studies um, in pouchitis, a condition that you get when you've had surgery in ulcerative colitis, where a combination of multiple different probiotics reduces the pouchitis, reduces the inflammation. So modifying the the gut flora is is an important part of how your gut um, responds to the environment. And and there are some studies in irritable bowel where there are some um, benefits in certain type of patients One of the problems, and and we we talked about that earlier on, is we try to lump all conditions together. So all patients with Crohn's disease and all patients with IBS. In reality, there's a lot of trial and error because we don't well categorize individuals um, to what they're likely to respond to.
1: So it's possible that um, certain subsets would respond very well to say a modification of the gut flora, or
4: that's right. Uh, you know, everyone wants the simple answer. I take one single strain of probiotic and put it into a gut that has millions of different types of bacteria, and I expect you know to be skipping down the road, yeah. feeling rejuvenated. It, of course, it's not.
1: Well, that would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Of course. Is um, that
2: coming? Okay.
1: So hands up. Um, I'm going to go put the lady up the back. Yep. If you could keep your hand up, so that. And then if you, the rest of you put your hands up, just so I know where we're going. One, okay, you're next, and then you are. And then you,
6: okay, one, two, so, good evening, panel. I'm a metformin user, and I have a great deal of sympathy with anybody that has loss of bile control and um, gut pain. It's unpleasant little taster as we change my medication. But I did notice my mother suffered severely from IBS, and I noticed her emotional state had a huge impact on that, particularly stress, but also of time of great emotion. And I wondered if there was a way that you could actually model that in the um, scientific studies on the tissue cultures that is easy enough to conceive of in a global level, but not actually at a cellular level.
1: Okay, that's a really good question. Um, Ewan or Jim, Do you stress your neurons in the lab? Uh,
0: Well, I mean, if you've got an animal model of, say, inflammatory bowel disease, the animal will have the same sorts of stress that a human who's experiencing that condition may have, or at least similar. Um, There are methods in in animals for, for making them experience stress if you're trying to look at anxiety or depression and so forth. But because of the way animal experiences are, are rightly regulated in the UK, I don't think it would be possible to have an animal experiencing an inflammatory bowel condition and then provide extra stress on top of that. One thing you can do is look at the effect of early life stress and then how that might affect how a, uh, how a disease develops in adulthood. It's not something we've done, but that's something that you know ethically is a lot more sound to do, because again, we know that your early life can have a major impact on how you experience pain in adulthood. Um, in terms of more at the tissue culture level, There are ways that you can look at sort of factors that we know are raised in stress, and you can look at how some of these factors may affect, for example, nerve excitability. Um, But I think because stress, much like, say, inflammatory bowel disease, is going to be a systemic thing, I think you'd really want to look at it in an intact organism. And I think we have to accept that when we're working with mice, one one of the reasons you're doing that is because you can control things. And if you're trying to find out what's going wrong in your model of inflammatory bowel disease or irritable bowel syndrome, to introduce another factor on top of that is going to overly complicate things. And, of course, that means we will miss certain aspects that are going to be true in that human. But we already know that humans are far more complicated than mice. We're all genetically far more diverse than the mice we're working with. So I think we just have to accept that the work we're doing will always have limitations. We're not going to be able to answer every single aspect of how individual people will differently experience a condition, how their treatments will affect them, and so on and so forth.
1: Um, so if we just come down to the third row, down to the front, please. If you just put your hand up so that the person... Yeah.
2: Thank you. Um, I'm really interested in um, that personalised um, aspect, personalised medicine and in, in relation to pain and what impact that has with the big pharmaceutical companies. So I'd be really interested to know your views because you make um, these massive progression in terms of identifying different pain factors in different people. How receptive are the pharmaceutical companies to that? Because presumably there's a cost factor to that. So I'd, I'd be quite interested to hear what you, your view is.
1: Jim, I think this might be one for you. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: y- yes. I mean, it's uh, the, I, I guess the, the history of IBS um, Uh, drug development has been marred with uh, a a number of clinical failures and I guess they've stung the hands of um, pharmaceutical development. So um, uh, how the work we've done is very very modern. So we've only just found out about these various populations. So how they will then be um, received and taken up by... Um, companies looking to develop new drugs is uh, still to be seen. Um, the, the point that's worth making is that these diseases affect a huge number of people. So um, irritable bowel syndrome, you're looking at something like 5 million people in the, in the UK, a sort a of huge number. <coughs> so even as you start to stratify into, into smaller groups and get down to that kind of personalised level, actually you're still talking about hundreds of thousands of people um, that might have a particular subtype or um, uh, uh, pathogenesis to their disease. So um, that's still a significant market and a significant area of interest that's going to drive attention for for developing these drugs. So yeah, it's still...
1: So I guess in terms of disorders, this is... Particularly good area for personalised medicine, you're saying, because with because the, the numbers are just so big anyway.
3: Um, I guess it's a it's a it's a good area to yeah to begin yeah. to stratify. And,
1: yeah. Yeah. Ewan?
0: And I guess just one thing to add, I mean, as Jim was saying, A, you can break down the overall disease and you've still got lots and lots of people, but also as everyone in the film was saying, the current pain medications we have don't really work and lots of the side effects are affecting the gut. So if the pharmaceutical companies are willing to take that gamble, if it pays off, there's a huge profit there to be made because you've got an, a clinical unmet need. So the, the, the optimist would say they should look at this preclinical data and go, we can really make something out of this. The cynical person would say, well, it's not enough people and it's a bit too much a gamble, you know, once bitten, twice shy. But... One has to be an optimist, I think. In you science.
1: and you would never be cynical twice in an evening. Okay, so, <laughs> okay, so who else have we got for? Qu- I think we've got. Okay, I'm going to go with here. Um, so first this gentleman, and then the lady. Bes-
8: thank you, thank you very much for the interesting talk. I'm interested. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the question is, but I'll say the the, my, um, the way I'm looking at this um, of the the gut as if it was a brain. <coughs> and the analogy between pain and, um, say, depression or post-traumatic stress disorder, that the mind is having a problem, forgetting very upsetting memories and is experiencing pain. Um, I wonder if the gut is, has a memory and a learning function where maybe some chronic disease that we're looking at as a, as a biological pain thing and we're trying to... C- to put pain relievers in, it could be a learning thing, and that the gut maybe is a very, very simple brain, and it's learnt very quickly a severe pain, which it now can't forget. And there's there's mm-hmm. there's um, that maybe that's sort a of root. I experienced this actually with being electrocuted on a wire fence walking wild once, and I noticed I'd learnt this incredible sp- um, propensity to being shocked when there wasn't a shock like a slight touch or something was just as painful and it's a very very powerful learnt pain was incredibly powerful to get rid of i wonder if that might be a factor in in
1: okay um i'm gonna pass that one to rob even though i did get electrocuted quite a lot growing up on a farm (laughs) but i'm still gonna pass this one to rob
4: um i think that's a great question And I think um, it is very pertinent in how we deal with a lot of the um, non-inflammatory pain, painful conditions. There is something that, um, you know, helpfully or unhelpfully, we call visceral hyperalgesia, which means that your gut somehow um, senses pain much more acutely and much more um, painfully um, the more that you've experience pain. So if you start with a severe enteric infection, and in, in arguably post-infective irritable bowel is a bit like this. You have a very painful Campylobacter or Salmonella gut infection that gives you acute pain. You then are left with painful stimuli um, that are being felt just as acutely with other more milder Stimuli, so that you get yourself into that cycle. And, and chronic pain doctors are aware of that, we, whether you have regional pain syndrome or whether you have experienced a severe painful episode, that, that your system is sensitized to react in a similar way. So I think it, it's a very pertinent point that we may not be dealing with the very same event, but we're dealing with a, a sort of sensitized and alert um, neuron that that recognises that in in the way it sort of remembers. I don't know whether that has any bearing on.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I, I guess the, the 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 problem, if you will, is if that then causes significant challenge um, in your in your quality of life. Um, so yeah, there there are a huge number of neurons within the within the gut itself um, and we know that they're all talking to each other and then talking through the through the pathways through the spinal cord and onto the brain so yeah again it comes down to the the research trying to understand um, how how those communications are being made and um, how do we combat this hypersensitivity and and try and bring that back down to a, a, a normal level um, so you're not in this heightened state.
1: So the lady, have you got, okay, Grace.
6: Thank you. Um, can the uh, gum flora transplant help these people? Sorry, if you could just repeat yeah. that once more? S- uh, the gum flora transplant can help these got patients?
4: The gut flora. Transplant.
1: Oh, yeah. the gut flora Sorry. transplant, <laughs> right. <laughs> Rob. Rob. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yes, I wondered whether this, when this was going to come up. I knew
1: this was going to come up. <laughs>
4: um, so f- uh, fecal transplants um, have um, recently, I, th- I guess over the last year or so, um, been proposed as a way of rather than just taking a single strain of bacteria in a little drink or in a capsule, why not just take someone else's whole gut flora and repopulate your um, gut with someone who... Doesn't have irritable bowel, who doesn't have Crohn's disease. There is some evidence that in some patients with ulcerative colitis, and these studies are always rather more positive when you run a series um, rather than randomized patients, but there are, there are some series of um, patients in ulcerative, uh, studies in ulcerative colitis where fecal transplants, uh, and I'll leave it to your imagination to work out how that happens. Um, when you repopulate someone's bowel with, um, you know, non-inflamed gut flora, that there has been um, good symptomatic relief. Um, So I think the jury's outstanding. It's, you know, it's a a rather clumsy and um, problematic way of treating uh, gut flora. But, um, you know, if that prevents major life-changing surgery Then um, there are individuals and units around that are are researching that.
1: Okay, so this gentleman here in the fourth, third row, even. You could just put your hand. Oh, yeah, great. Um, The
8: the, the film made passing comment about uh, an increased um, prevalence of um, these kinds of disorders, um, and alluded to some of the reasons for it. Um, Historically, there's been quite a uh, a link between uh, Crohn's disease in particular and uh, IBS with autism. So could you both comment on the current thinking about the link between uh, neurodevelopmental difficulties and um, bowel difficulties? Um, and also what you're thinking is about the reasons why there's been a, a massive increase in the diagnostic prevalence of both neurodevelopmental and bowel difficulties.
1: Ewan, Rob?
4: I, I'm happy to start. <laughs> you start, I'll try and finish. Yeah. Um, I mean, bo- both, both conditions. So I, I, I can certainly tell you that there are many more children being diagnosed with Crohn's disease now than there were even 10 years ago. They tend to be diagnosed younger and with more severe disease. And we don't know. We simply don't know. It's not a genetic change because our genome is pretty stable. So we're assuming and we're doing work on what environmental triggers may be switching on genes, perhaps that you're predisposed to earlier in life, to present then with with bowel inflammation. Um, but we, we don't know. There has been many studies that show that it's a northern hemisphere, <coughs> western world, urban um, condition, um, inflammatory bowel disease. So we, we assume it's something environmental. It may be something in food, something in the way that we, we keep our kids very clean. Um, uh, you know, So that, that there's something, the gut flora is important, so there's something that's changed um, in, in our generation. Autism, I think, is slightly different, and I, I'm not the expert, but um, there, is, there are changes in diagnostic categories. So the detection may be getting better uh, the, the harder we look, um, and therefore the incidence may be um, artificially increased. Um, I don't think that's the case for inflammatory bowel disease because these kids weren't around um, and, and would present. The relationship between autism and bowel disease has had a you know, pretty... Checkered history... Um, ...and whilst there was a claim made... ...that um, bowel inflammation... ...was related to autism... ...through vaccination somehow... Um, ...I don't think that's really been substantiated... ...in any meaningful way. No. Um,
1: Ewan, do you want to add to that? I or? think the
0: only thing I'd add is... I, I, ...I'm not sure with inflammatory bowel disease itself... ...but in terms of this, this environment you're living in... ...and comparing different sorts of environments... If you look at East and West Germany, when they were separate countries, and you looked at the rates of things like asthma, it's much, much higher in the West, which was deemed a much cleaner, nicer place to live than in the East. And I don't know whether there's any evidence about inflammatory bowel disease on this. But Eastern, lots of Eastern and
4: Western Europe have exactly the same um, uh, distribution of rising inflammatory bowel disease. Northern and Southern Europe, um, Northern and urban Africa, and, and um, you know, uh, sort of country based um, uh, cultures that they don't present with inflammatory bowel disease. It may be the parasitic burden, it may be the, the you know, not washed plates, and, and uh, a lot of the, the, the sort of sanitized environment that we bring our kids up in in, in a more northern and, and western environment that's, that's to blame. Yeah. But we don't know is the answer.
1: Okay, so this lady here. Um, just hold on, wait to, the, to get the microphone. Just a follow-up question, Ernie, just a question. Many children, young children with autism, have a real problem with eating. Um, They often will eat a very bland, very minimal diet. I mean, and result of this, they may have constipation, they may have trouble um, going to the loo. Could this have any effect on them getting further disease? <coughs> when you say further disease, bowel disease, right. if they're not eating, not yeah, okay. I,
4: I, they're, they're not overrepresented. Children with autism aren't overrepresented um, in in our population of of children with inflammatory bowel disease, for example. And I think they would present. It's not that they're not able to demonstrate those symptoms. So I don't think they're overrepresented because of the very restricted diet.
1: Okay, so there's a lady just here. I'm going to ask people who haven't asked a question yet. So there's a lady right here in the centre.
7: A few years ago, my GP told me I'd got a low tolerance pain level. Uh, I was shocked at the time, and I went away and thought about it. I've also got red hair, and I've read about red hair people having a low tolerance pain level. I'm always in pain. I have been all my life. It's getting worse as I get older. Uh, I just want to know what that means when you say it's a uh, low tolerance pain level, and has red hair got anything to do (laughs) with it?
0: (laughs)
1: So, Ewan, I think I'm going to direct straight over to you on this one. Maybe one so you've, done, you've done experiments with the public just to show this specific thing, haven't
0: you? Well, we, yes, you can measure heat pain threshold in people, and basically most people, if they're healthy and so forth, will have a heat pain threshold of approximately 42 degrees. One exception to this, if you take a schoolboy and you test the schoolboy on his own, he'll say 42 degrees, Mm -hmm. if you did him up here on stage, you'd keep going up, 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 up to try and push the machine to the max. Schoolgirls won't. So that says something about the intelligence of boys, perhaps. (laughs) So in terms of pain thresholds in general, and then if you start looking at gender differences, It's something that's been much under-investigated. Firstly, when you're asking for pain thresholds in people, quite often you're asking them to rate on a scale of 0 to 10, where 10 is the worst pain imaginable, and 0 is no pain at all. Well, that's going to depend upon your life experiences. I've never given birth, but I've seen films. It looks quite painful. That might have an impact on what your average, let's say, female reports as being a normal (coughs) level of pain. So in terms of things that affect pain thresholds, there's lots of genetic factors we know can affect it. So there are people who exist who have congenital insensitivity to pain. So genetically, they have no ability to sense pain. Some of these people lack the nerve apparatus to do this. Other people have changes in single genes that just affect their sensitivity to different stimuli. In terms of the red hair link, yes, there is a link. So you've got this thing called stress-induced analgesia. If you're playing sports and you fall over and injure yourself, you sort of run it off and you don't really feel about the pain until later. Now, the mechanisms for stress-induced analgesia are different in men and women. And in women, the stress-pain pathway is linked to a similar gene that controls hair colour. So there is a reason why dep- not all people with red hair have the same variation that will cause a change in pain threshold. But there is a genetic linkage between certain reasons why people have red hair and their stress-induced analgesia. So not as a generic thing, everyone with red hair has different pain sensitivity, but within females, there is a subset of genes that will affect your stress-induced analgesia for sure. But, it, but it's really complicated. Thankfully, again, when we are working with mice, they can't, they can't speak back to us. We just measure something very objectively.
1: Do you have red-haired mice?
0: No. Who <laughs> oh, what black hair?
1: Okay. So, I know... All right. So, this is a um, person just up in the very back row. I'm sorry, the back row of the front section.
8: Thank you very much for your very informative answers this evening.
4: Um, do you try and do correlations, then, between your mice and people? And so, how do you know that a mouse is having pain and comparing that to with a pain in a person
1: okay so Jim or you and
3: yeah so this is the challenge so um, obviously a mouse can't tell you if it's in pain Um, what we can do is um, uh, so the uh, uh, we can use methodology that we know is painful in humans so um, Uh, People have done studies looking at um, uh, balloon distension, for example, um, into the the colon and uh, measured pain thresholds in in people. And we can use similar techniques in mice and measure um, uh, nerve activity, so nerve firing, and use that as an inference that if uh, we get nerve firing at a certain uh, pressure of distension, then we can uh, we can take that to mean um, that's a noxious stimulus and that's, that's a, uh, we're activating um, pain sensing fibers or, or nociceptors. Ewan, um, so
0: do yeah. you
1: want to add to that? Yeah.
0: Well, as I say, I mean, this is, this is true. A lot of pain tests across time, you're evoking a painful stimulus and measuring the response of the animal, and you can do the same in humans. But most of the people in the film who are hearing about, you know, they talk about how pain affects their everyday life. And so I think there's been a big change in pain research in probably the last five to 10 years where people are trying to use better models for measuring how ongoing pain is affecting the behavior of an animal. So a very simple example is people who have osteoarthritis quite often have problems walking and their gait will be different where well, you can now have devices that are able to measure exactly the same things in mice. So rather than having to prod your mouse and waiting for it to go, ouch, you can watch it walking. You can get a, a treadmill called a catwalk machine. You can film your mouse from underneath to look at how its stride length differs. And of course, the mouse won't tell you that it's in pain, but if in humans with arthritis, their stride length and their weight bearing differs, and we have the same sort of phenotype in a mouse, the mouse behaves in the same way, Then if we now give a drug to our mouse that makes it walk normally, then maybe it could have the same effect in humans. Similarly, you can measure things like digging behavior, mice like digging if they're in pain they dig less well if you're feeling pretty lousy you don't want to do very much either so we're gonna always have this we're always going to have this barrier between you know the mouse can't speak we're always inferring what's going on but I think that pain scientists are becoming more flexible in their interpretation of what sorts of ways should we use to assess pain in an animal comparing that to a, to a human
1: and I guess there is also the thing we, we learned from the film that the pain affects social interactions It affects mental health. It affects many different aspects. It's not just the pain. And I guess there are aspects of behavior that can also be measured in animals. And I'm sure that's done in in certain aspects. Okay, so we've got a question right up at the back. There's two, actually, um, the fourth and third row. So if you could just pass the microphone to the person behind you once you're finished, that'd be great.
8: Yeah, thanks again for a fantastic uh, film and and, um, answers to questions. What could the members of this audience do to help overcome the social stigma? Other than, um, I there's there's one obvious answer to that which would be to contribute to your charity. But uh, I meant in in our interactions with other people, is there anything that, that we could actually do?
1: So Deborah, I think I'm going to pass this one to you. Is there anything that we can practically do or learn from this? I mean, I think the film itself was very informative. Mm. Um, and it certainly has helped me understand the challenges a lot better. But what can we do in terms of if we have a family member or a work colleague or something? Is <laughs>
2: <laughs> It's quite a difficult one to answer. But I think, in general, if everybody is more open about their bowels and their bowel health, and... <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and no,
1: but that's, that's it. We're no, all I laughing, because that's does, that's what we do, yes, I guess. Yes,
2: it, do, it, does, it does sound quite funny being open about your bowels, but um, it, it is really important that we all become less um, insular and British about talking about things to do, to do with our bowels, because it, it, is, it can be another invi- an invisible disability for people, and just... Mm. Um, Having that little bit more understanding about, for example, one thing everybody in this room could do is if they do see somebody using, for example, a disabled toilet and they look like they're walking into it or even running into it um, and they look at them and think, well, that person shouldn't be using a disabled toilet because they can walk, actually step back and think, well actually that person might be using a disabled toilet because they're actually incontinent and if they don't run into it right now they're going to have a terrible accident and i actually know quite a few people who've come out of a disabled toilet after having
1: and been challenged
2: a, and been yeah. challenged about why they've been been uh, using it in the first place so i think if everybody t- uh, today went away and a, donated five pounds to <laughs> Baroline Cancer Research, we'd all be absolutely delighted, but just to consider um, that people are walking around, friends, family and others, ch- and children are, are going to school with with, um, with these with these things that could be construed as, as hidden disabilities, and, ju- and just to maybe think about that in your everyday interactions, I think that would actually be tremendously helpful.
1: And I guess it's the same with the, the challenges that we're having with mental health, across the community, it is about being open and really just having conversations with your friends and family, like you would if they had, for instance, a broken leg or broken arm or something, and then really, you know, as you said, to be less insular about it and and really just have an open conversation, I think, is is always helpful, just like we're having tonight, so I think hopefully this has helped even a lot of people here. Mm. So we are just coming to the end. So I'm going to take, like, a couple of last... Oh, I forgot. Yes. Sorry. Yes.
7: Uh, Go for it. I'm afraid I've got three questions. Um, (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) The first is you mentioned that Ollie was having a liquid diet which had cured all his ulcers, but he clearly wasn't well. So if you could comment on that, because, you know, you speak as though it had cured it, it. It doesn't seem to have done the second is the questions on pro and prebiotics. You answered as though um, as healthy people, but it, I'd be really grateful if you could comment on how it would help with Crohn's and irritable bowel disease. You know, and what would be best to promote um, a good culture in that. And the third one is: I've just been to Gregory Winter's talk, and he was. You will know more about this than I do, but his way of targeting. Um, drugs and I wondered if that could be helpful with something like Crohn's and irritable
1: bowel disease. Okay, so I'm going to mix these up. Uh, you and I'm going to give you the monoclonal antibody because I presume that's what the lady was referring to. Um, Rob, if you could, so, oh yes, so the first test. one was about, um, so the boy that featured in the film uh, was shown, uh, he had a a liquid diet for six weeks that Rob has alluded to that can help with Crohn's disease because it can um, rid some of the ulcers. So if you could just give a little bit more detail on that and why is it not a quick fix?
4: <clears throat> so, so first of all, it, it, it really only applies to Crohn's disease. Um, and as you heard, it wasn't the most delicious way to spend six weeks. Um, it does work effectively in many children with Crohn's disease, not in all. But you need to continue that diet. So at the end of six weeks, we reintroduce a normal diet your gut flora probably goes back to what it was um, before you started the liquid diet and your symptoms come back your immune system reacts against your gut flora and your ulcers come back so there are children um, who take themselves on and off of these liquid diets for shorter periods of time when they have flares of their symptoms but it's not something that um, i've come across anyone wanting to do in the long term for the sake of having a, um, uh, a healed bowel.
1: Okay, and if you uh, and I'm going to ask you about uh, Sir Gregory Winters because I know that you and actually lectures on monoclonal antibodies, so no pressure here, Ewan, no, if you and. Quite.
0: Um, so for those who don't know, so, so Sir Gregory Winters was Master of Trinity, and he just won the Nobel Prize for his development of a technique that enables you to develop antibodies against specific chemicals so in our immune system you have cells in your body that produce antibodies when you have an infection and this is one of the reasons why you have an immunological memory because once your cells have made antibodies against something once you tend not to get ill with that thing again because you've got the antibodies they can be made again and what, what, uh, what Greg did was he developed a technique for screening of how to make antibodies against substances that we know are involved in certain conditions. Um, and indeed, some of these are used for certain forms of inflammatory bowel disease, where some of the factors involved are very similar to factors involved in rheumatoid arthritis. So some of these uh, type of drugs are used... But you have to identify the mediator that's causing the disease and again you're going to have people who have the condition some will be affected by the drug you developed and others won't the same as in rheumatoid arthritis there's a plethora of these targeted therapies but basically it's trial and error you give this person one of them you hope it works if it doesn't you go on to the next one sometimes you've got a biomarker in the blood so a marker of what this person might respond to better than something else and so it's a matter of just trying to identify again this comes out this patient stratification working out what things are causing their disease would a particular drug we have help and if not could we think of developing a new monoclonal antibody a new targeted therapy against something that's driving this particular disease so yes they are used and, and yes I think in the future we could have more varieties to treat in a similar way
1: Okay, and then for your third question, I think that related back to the microbiome again. And I guess just to reiterate what the panel have said, you know, that recommending having a varied diet, obviously including fermented foods, um, possibly having a pet. Cats. You know, because Ewan is very, very pro for that. But Deborah, do you have any other adv- advice, practical advice for um, people, not even necessarily people affected with bowel or gut conditions, but just. You know it's everyone here staying
2: well uh, well yeah. part of what what we're very interested in, in as a charity is actually the the prevention um, yes. type piece of work because um, uh, we do know that a lot of disease and particularly bowel cancer a lot of drivers to bowel cancer are actually lifestyle related so exercise and food um, and so this is
1: where the red meat and the alcohol
2: yeah so this is where Red, uh, lowering your red meat consumption, um, eating more green leafy veg, um, a diet that's high in fibre, etc., really really come into play. And of course, that's very that's quite complicated because if you have something like an inflammatory bowel disease, you might be actually contraindicated to eat that yeah, of sort course. of course. But the other thing that we haven't spoken about tonight, which again goes back to this gentleman's point slightly, is the sort of the well-being ac- yep. um the well-being piece, which is about. Um, Uh, you know, mindfulness and teaching yourself to do things like meditation, for example, can also actually be quite helpful in terms of um, helping yourself to self-manage things like pain in in a chronic disease Mm. and, in general, in health as well. Um, And most of our serotonin, which is what makes us feel happy, is actually located in our gut and not in our brain. Uh, And we are just about starting to understand now, in terms of the microbiome, about the the actual impact it has on our overall health, having a healthy Microbiome and our well-being and our mental well-being as well. So, so it's all it's all quite it's, holistic, yeah. actually.
1: Absolutely, I, d- I don't think it's a it's a one-answer question. Okay. So, on that note, we're going to take one last question, but I'm also going to remind you, you've got these surveys right in front of you. Oh. You did your pre-survey. We'd really appreciate it if you could just take a minute to complete the other side. And I'm going to take one last question from this. L- I. I want to ask this person, because she hasn't had a chance. Could this person here on the, on the side? <coughs> I'm sure the, spi- the panel will stay around for maybe five minutes afterwards if you want to come up and ask a question.
6: Thank you. Thank you very much for the presentation. Um, quick question about the mice. If we don't know the cause of IBS, how do you cause uh, IBS in a mouse? Ah. And uh, just quickly, why is IBS called IBS? Where is the inflammation? um, If there's no really markers or anything to... So so
0: IBS is irritable bowel syndrome. So that's why, you know, patients often present without overt inflammation, although there is certain evidence suggests there could be some forms of inflammation, but not sort of as um, classical as in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, Mice are a model system. We don't know what causes IBS, we don't really know what causes IBD, but you can induce conditions that cause inflammation of the colon in a mouse, so they present with the same sorts of symptoms as humans will experience. They will lose certain control over their gut motility, um, they'll have pain behaviours, and as Jim referred to earlier, the same as in humans with these conditions, they have this um, enhanced pain to distension of the colon, so do mice when we induce a form of of colitis so we're in no way saying that the models of inflammation of the gut we have in the mouse are the same as what they are in the human but they're a model for how we can try and mirror what's going on in both conditions so they're as good as we've got at the moment but the same as if you look at rheumatoid arthritis um, conditions the models that were used in mice 50 years ago have dramatically changed in the last 15 years as we've begun to understand what's driving the condition because then you can better refine your animal model and develop better treatments. So all those uh, the Greg Winter treatments for treating a chemical called tumor necrosis factor alpha, all of those came out of mouse work. So there's, although the mouse will never be the perfect human, the mouse has already demonstrated they can be of great use in understanding disease mechanisms and validating a treatment that we know works in humans and trying to understand why in mice.
1: And how do you induce inflammation in the mice? So basically, when you, have the, when you have the nerve fibers out, do you... Well,
0: there are different ways of doing things. I mean, very simply, what happens in a, in a lot of conditions affecting the gut is the epithelium, so the cells lining the colon, break down in some way from some cause. And you can induce a similar process in a mouse. So then the natural cause will take, you know, you've got all these bacteria in the gut, they can then interact with the in, inside parts of the colon where normally they're kept out of. So there are different ways you can do things, and they're just models of what happens in the human guts. They're by no means perfect. So
1: I'm just going to, so just on that note, Ewan, if people want to watch this film again, or maybe share it with their family and friends, or maybe somebody that's particularly suffering... Is this film going to be made publicly available?
0: So the film should be made publicly available on the University of Cambridge YouTube channel. Um, I don't know how long that's going to take to go through the system, um, but it should be, if not, available on the departmental, Department of Pharmacology website very soon, hopefully by the end of the week. But yes, it will certainly be available for all and to watch and disseminate what further.
1: It will be on Cambridge Neuroscience in Time, also on Twitter if you follow Ewan as well. Um, I'm just really conscious of time that we'll be you know, uh, shot, if we don't (laughs) leave on time. And I'm sure the panel would really like to thank all of the contributors to the film, some of which are here tonight, and I'd like to say a personal thanks to all of the panel, who I think you really um, took some great questions there this evening, and uh, rather you than me for most of them. And I'd like to thank you. Um, It's not often we have hour-and-a-half events, and your attention and, you know, your real interest in this subject has been... um, well, I think Deborah will be happy and she'll be able to go back to her board and, and say at least the people in Cambridge are taking, uh, yeah. taking the bowel seriously.
7: <laughs>
1: yeah, so um, thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the Science Festival.